potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another really fascinating guest today. Uh, today we have the honor of being joined by Dr. Eddie Holmes, uh, who is an evolutionary biologist who distinguished for his work on both the emergence and evolution of viruses. And over the years of his career, uh, he has used genomic and phylogenetic approaches to reveal major mechanisms of virus evolution uh, and has determined the genetic and epidemiological processes that explain how many viruses jump species boundaries, spread to new hosts. Uh, Dr. Holmes' work has revealed the origin, evolution, and molecular epidemiology of very important human pathogens, uh, including influenza, HIV, dengue, uh, and has enabled uh, accurate assessments of what types of viruses are most likely to emerge in human populations, whether they're evolved uh, for human-to-human spread. Uh, and his recent research has provided really fundamental insights into a breadth and biodiversity of the viral world uh, and has additionally studied the emergence and spread of pathogens, including COVID, uh, hepatitis C, uh, Yersinius pestis, as well as myxoma and, and rabbit hemorrhagic uh, disease virus, among many others. Uh, Dr. Holmes is currently a professor in the Sydney Institute for Infectious Diseases, School of Life uh, and Environmental Sciences and City Medical School at University of Sydney, uh, and his previous appointments uh, have included uh, uh, as the Vern uh, Wayman Chair in Life Sciences down the road here at Penn State University, uh, as an affiliate member of the Fogarty International Center down the road at the NIH. Uh, he was also a fellow from 1999-2004 uh, at New College, Oxford, uh, honorary visiting professor at Fudan University in Shanghai, uh, and he is the author of close to 700 peer-reviewed papers, including two books. Uh, we are honored to have him with us today. Uh, Dr. Eddie Holmes, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Oh, my pleasure. It, 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 it's great having you here. Um, you know, as I mentioned in the intro, um, you know, across the hundreds of papers that you have published uh, in the peer-reviewed literature over the years, um, while you've been focusing on these core themes of viral evolution and emergence, unlike many of our previous guest who specialize in a sort of a few of the usual suspect viruses mentioned in your bio, uh, your portfolio of viruses is is quite extensive. Uh, in addition you know, to what I mentioned, you've published on uh, rubella-like viruses in the Pacific Electric Ray, uh, in uh, uh, picornaviruses, in, in New Zealand reptiles, and, and one of my favorites, the uh, the insect-specific alpha virus, the yada-yada virus, just to name a few. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, talk a little bit about when, when the virus sphere, and this is a theme we'll get back to uh, quite a bit, yeah. is your target. How do you decide ultimately which of these bugs you're working on in any given day? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good question. So my, as you said at the start, I'm, I think I'm more of an evolutionary biologist than a neurologist, right? So the questions that have always driven me are evolutionary questions. So I want to understand the diversity of nature and what explains that diversity. And so when I when I think about understanding viruses, my my my, my focus is always trying to let's what's the evolutionary angle. And so the species that we tend to sample tend to be ones that can address interesting evolutionary questions, okay, or or ecological questions. So for example, we've just we've just been to uh, New Zealand in the in a, the fjordland. It's a beautiful place, right in the far kind of southwest corner of New Zealand, very remote. It's, you know, it's, it's Lord of the Rings kind of territory, you know, it's amazing remote islands. I mean, we've been to one little island there called Anchor Island, which is, you can only get to a helicopter. And we basically sampled every species on the island. Okay, so every every bird, every reptile, luckily it's only one reptile. 
uh, every mammal there are no mammals okay lots of insects and the idea it's a it's a whole ecosystem and the idea is how do viruses flow between an ecosystem and so that meant sampling things like kiwi are there obviously you know what kiwis are kakapo they're these really rare parrots a thing called a moorbuck which is um more pork, sorry, which is a, like a, a like a New Zealand owl. So, mm -hmm. and so these are species that you never think about, but right. because they were ecologically linked, we decided to look at them. So, again, the, the species that I sample were entirely based on what's the evolutionary ecological question. And and as you sample some of these sort of lesser sampled species, and, and obviously, you know, as, as mentioned, you know, core to your work is, you know, understanding this this host species barrier issue yeah. with viruses, uh, you know, what's responsible for transmission, what's responsible for protection. And obviously, you know, uh, if we think of uh, the, the, the usual suspects, again, whether it's that chicken or the monkey or uh, the rat, whatever it may be that we think about in terms of some of these uh pathogens that that impact us as humans you know you also publish on uh, the platypus uh the penguin yeah. uh, the bottlenose dolphin and here we got birds and and mammals and other types of things that are quite similar yeah. what are some of the top line learnings in the sense you know um why the why the chicken why yeah. not the penguin and, and some of the top line insights that you why see the chicken when you... can get a virus yeah no exactly. so look it's look look and that's a good question, but I think you need to understand. So the way I see it is, is that so what we've got, we've gone through with COVID, right? You know, yeah. is because a virus jumped the species boundary, right. and that that process happens. It, it you know jumped from whatever it was, may have bounced with the animal into human, <clears throat> and caused a new disease, and that happens on a regular basis. And so we, as humans, our focus on that is on the kind of very much the the health and economic consequences of that process which is understandable because people have you know, it's been awful that that virus jumping occurs on a regular basis right in, in the natural world not and not just involving humans involving every every species you can think of and humans give their virus to other things too so humans are not the we tend to think in, in disease emergence as humans being the end of the chain, right? We're the last species. That's that's not humans can give their things to. I mean, humans. I mean, there's been big measles outbreaks, for example, in in, in Great Apes in Africa, and that's human measles. Okay, so we've given we've given those animals, and they're, they're dying because of it. So, what I want to understand, I guess, the, the goal of my research is is what what drives the diversity of viruses in nature, and part of one of the drivers is that they jump between species. So, for a virus, all all a virus wants to do. It wants to find a host cell to replicate it. Okay, so that's that, that's its home. That's its environment. That's that's got its all its resources. Is this host cell? It doesn't actually matter in many ways what host, what animal or plant that host cell is in, as long as it can find a cell to get into. So jumping between cells, uh, aka jumping between viruses, uh, being hosts, is a, is a, is the way how viruses live. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to try and do is understand that. The, the, the barriers and determinants of that process. And it's, again, it's a process that occurs in all viruses and all hosts. So I look at these other animal species in the chickens and the dolphins and the platypuses and the whatever, possums, to, to, to learn from them the general rules about how viruses do this, how, they, how are they able to jump between species bound, boundaries. And very, very, and that happens all the time. Many cases, the virus doesn't get going occasionally it can cause a little it, it, a, a transmission chain and very very rarely it becomes like a pandemic thing and in nature one thing i've learned actually in most animal species in doing this is that most viruses probably don't even cause disease okay i mean it's actually so i, I sample i sample a lot of birds a lot of fish i'm obsessed by sampling fish for some reason right so we sample a lot of birds and fish and these animals are absolutely full of virus, right? Mm -hmm. They're full of virus. And so the virus, we, the fish sampling, for example, a lot of it at the local fish market. Right? So you actually go and bought these. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you can do this work in your kitchen. So you go and buy, you go and buy snapper, you go and buy whiting. You know, we bought, I bought loads. I bought a lot of fish. Um, the great thing is you can barbecue your food afterwards. You have your research animal afterwards. And you see, you sample these fish. And you sequence them, and they're full of virus, right? right? Absolutely full of virus. And that's nothing, nothing wrong with that. There's nothing to be afraid of because fish viruses don't replicate human cells normally, right? But so, but it just shows you that in, in the natural world, these healthy animals carry an abundance of viruses, okay, mm -hmm. that are seemingly doing them no harm whatsoever. So the, 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 the pandemic killer that we've just had, 
or still going through actually is actually a rare thing it turns out so that, that my perspective you know it's kind of changed by looking at the natural we don't see it happen so 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 often so again so to um I'm understand, I want to understand the drivers of how viruses jump species boundaries. And that then helps us understand how viruses like SARS-CoV-2 can do what they do. Or why other viruses. So I work, I've done a lot of work in China in the past. Yep. And China did a lot of things called, hand, called hantaviruses, very nasty yep. viruses. They, and you get them in the US actually. So very in the Western US, um, there's been lots mm -hmm. of hantavirus outbreaks because these deer mice carry them. Now, the interesting thing about hantaviruses, they, they jump between rodents and humans all the time. There's mm -hmm. lots of jumping going on. So people in very, very famous you know, outbreaks in New Mexico, Four Corners region get them. But they never jump, they never go from human to human. There's never, there's, there's, a, there's a one animal to human transmission, but never, an out, never a big outbreak, never an epidemic. Why? Why are they unable to get going and become pandemic and why is it that coronaviruses i mean we've now it's like the ninth human coronavirus we found how is it that they're so able to not only jump but then to just keep going what allows that virus to become so epidemic prone in contrast to a hantavirus that's really nasty gets in humans but never gets going so mm. those are the kind of questions that i i try and address and to do that, because my evolutionary biologist, I took a kind of comparative approach and look at all animals and all viruses, okay, because it, that gives us lessons. And, and you know, you, you brought up bats before and, and you know, somebody that you've published uh, several papers with I had on a show about two years ago now was uh, Dr. Lin Fo Wang, uh, and he introduced yeah. us to uh, this the uh, Hendra actually down, to, which uh, you know, the situation was down yeah. your way in that case, bat to horse to human, um, and um, you know, one of the really interesting things um, as we see uh, some of these, and, and actually um, when you you meant the sort of the spill or the spill over and the spill back when. Um, uh, Dr. Zukasoka was on from Uganda. She was at, the, at that point in time, the first hippopotamus <laughs> had just contracted COVID. So it was a, a kind of a sad day, but Is that right? um, yeah, <laughs> wow. it, it, it was a bizarre I situation. Heard, I hadn't heard hippo. That's extraordinary. Yeah. That's yeah. Extraordinary. But, you know, along those lines, uh, whether we're talking Hendra or COVID, um, you published this paper, uh, this was 2019 in November called Entrance of Microbiology focus on ecosystem perspective on virus evolution and emergence. Yeah. And you sort of, yeah. in this paper, you add sort of what we think of the one health concept. So, you know, human to animal to intermediary, what have you. And you bring the ecosystem into play. Um, and I think that's a something we don't hear as much about, that whether we're destroying this forest or we're killing off this megafauna over here, it impacts everything else that allows a lot of this to happen. Talk a little bit about that paper, if you would. Yeah. So... No, yeah, and thanks for bringing that up. And so I, th I think serology is a subject has, I, I use the word suffered a bit, from a very anthropocentric kind of view, okay? And so for, for most of serology, we've been interested in the viruses that understandably infect us or infect the animals that we we use as food or the, you know, the, or the crops that we use as food so the, or, or use in our daily lives. So the first virus ever found was tobacco mosaic virus because it was you know a, a blight on a very economically important um product of course that wouldn't happen today okay because tobacco is no longer uh, a, you know, a, well hopefully not a big thing for us so there's been this very strong anthropocentric bias and we, and that's automatically kind of put humans at the the center of the universe it's kind of like looking at you know the history of science before copernicus so humans yeah. are the kind of center of the world rather than rather than the sun um and i you know and the more i study the viruses in nature that became obvious that just wasn't the case right that, that viruses are everywhere and humans are just are just another species right a very just disruptive species a species that's that's kind of fueled more viral evolution than any other but just any another species and like i said earlier humans give their viruses to other things so we're not the end of the chain right there's not this great chain of being that ends in humans humans are kind of linking it and we can move viruses around we can we can kind of connect species. So that leads to think, okay, rather than think about humans in this kind of linear way, right? There's a like the way you described it earlier. So you have a red, you have a, you have a reservoir host, an intermediate host, and human, right? That's kind of got a directionality that humans are the are the, are the chosen one at the end. It's, it's not like that. And 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 you mentioned SARS-CoV-2 hippos. 
you know, it's a really good example. So humans have now passed their virus to an extraordinary number of species. It's just absolutely, I've, in fact, all my 30 plus years of doing this, I've never seen a virus ever as host generous as SARS-CoV-2, as an aside, right? I mean, in, in white tail deer in the US, amazing prevalence, right? So humans are, again, just one species in this kind of interconnected network. Um, and I think what you find about what I think about disease emergence, so things jumping to cause, you know, outbreaks, is they're often caused by by a dis disturbance, the kind of a disruption to, to, the, to the ecosystem. And humans are the great disruptor because what, we, what we're doing in the last particularly post-World War II, you know, you've got defore massive deforestation, mega cities, global travel, these wildlife markets, all the, just, you know, species driving to extinction, climate change, human-driven climate change, all those things are kind of disrupting the natural world, putting animals into, co into, into contact with each other that wouldn't have been in the past, putting humans into contact with animals that wouldn't happen in the past. And the more you bring things together, the more you put animals together, humans with animals, you increase exposure, you increase the chances of these things jumping, right? So, you know, the Anthropocene, what we are in now, humans have, 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 have altered the planet. We're also altering the disease aspects of the planet mm -hmm. as well. So I think we, we live in a, a this completely um, massively connected world. And not just not just the way humans live, but the, the viral world is completely connected. So that's so going back, I, mean, I mentioned I was in this island in New Zealand. The idea there was to say, let's look at one ecosystem and let's see how often viruses jump between an interconnected ecosystem, right? So you take a snapshot of one population, how often are viruses moving? Rather than you know, what we normally do is we sample some bat viruses and some rodent viruses. We do an evolutionary tree. We try and mm -hmm. work out, aha, that one gave one to that one, that one. That's fine, but you're looking at a very long evolutionary perspective of thousands of years. What I want to know is at one point in time, one interact community, how are they how are they um sharing viruses and humans there's, there's no humans on anchor island in in, in new zealand so it's actually humans are not part of this but in other ecosystems that that virus sharing is going on between animals and humans are are, are pushing it they're driving it mm. and as climate change goes on we're going to see so what's going to happen with climate change is that, is that is that pristine habitats will decline animals will be forced to group together that will increase exposure. That will increase viral jumping. Humans who who rely on subsistence will need to go and go further into the into the remaining pristine areas to get their subsistence. They're interacting with more species. So, you know, a very simple prediction of climate change is going to cause more pandemics. And I hate to break it to people, right? But this, you know, this is going to happen again, and it's going to get worse. Okay, because because we live in this ecosystem, because we we way we perturbed it, that's going to cause more pandemics. Simple as that. And um, you know, thinking of uh, the the impact on okay, no, not directly on humans, but on things that supply us in the sense of food. Um, you yeah. uh, this 2007 paper in AgriScience where you studied something called Israeli acute paralysis virus, and this was right in the middle of you know when all the honeybee colonies were collapsing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Talk a little about that because you know, I'm going to go down the path here of sort of. Yeah. Things that, yeah, okay, this is not a human thing, but we need the bees, we need the honey, we need them to pollinate everything so we can eat food. We need the um, bees. We, yeah, yeah, more than anything. We need them. You, you, talk, talk about sort of analyzing some of these, you know, dangerous things that are happening in the virus sphere in terms of that. But at the same time, you know, what are some things that, you know, what happened as a result of that? I mean, are there solutions like, you know, what we, what the Linfa was telling us about in terms of Hendra? Okay, we vaccinate the horses. And okay, that that prevented the Hendra uh, later on. But what what could we do for something like the the honeybee colonies? Yeah, and, no, okay. And, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I, I, I'll just I'll just talk about Hendra. Actually, you mentioned a very interesting question, and it this really this really shows you where it's in critical things about ecology. So, Linfa will say rightly vaccinate the horses. That's a really good. Obviously, it's a great thing to do. The other thing you can do, the ecological solution is actually probably more more important. Is Hendra comes from bats right and the problem is that humans have encroached on bat habitats this is what's happened it's the same as nipa you may have heard of nipa yep. in in southeast sure. asia bangladesh so these bats are coming into these human villages and they and they eat this date palm and people drink this date palm. They, they urinate in this defecating this date palm sap and people drink this and that's what causes hemp causes nipa but it's a very nasty disease now what's the solution to that actually it's great what you do is you plant more trees 
you plant trees away from where people live. You plant trees that bats want to live in. You make good habitats for bats where they want to be away from human settings. You give them an ecological zone where they want to be. So they don't have to go into the into the date, date palm trees in your local village. OK, they don't have to go in places where your horses are in Queensland and Australia. So if you if we improve the environment and give them a place to live away from us, you you, you, you put a barrier to transmission. I mean, it's planting trees. It's as simple as that. Right. Extraordinary. And that's an ecological kind of solution to it. Right. Amazing. Extraordinary thing. So we, if we think about that kind of that kind of way of thinking, mm-hmm. let's let's. These animal viruses that can infect us. Let's give let's give animals get them away from us by making their lives better somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a it's a different way of thinking rather than. Oh, I mean, I like the high tech solutions. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, vaccines have been amazing in COVID. mRNA vaccines mm-hmm. unbelievable, right? I mean, we need those high tech solutions, but low tech ecological solutions because because the virus is part of the ecosystem. So if we manage our ecosystems there, we're going to do this. We're also going to prevent pandemics. And ultimately, that's a more effective and cheaper way to do it. OK. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of like B, I mean, the B virus, a B thing. Those of your listeners may not uh, remember this is that there's a thing called colony collapse disorder, which is big. Yeah. I lived in Pennsylvania at the time mm-hmm. um, and it was a huge thing. You remember these these bee colonies were just was collapsing yep. and, and um, a whole going Stinging. and that was um you know that that if we lose the pollinators and of course bats by the way bats are important pollinators we have to conserve bats they're important pollinators right but if we lose the pollinators we are in you know serious serious trouble so it's critical that we have we have a, a healthy honeybee population and so these these and so that there's this out there's these colonies collapse disorders going on in the u.s particularly and the question is what was causing it and so what that led to which is actually very interesting i think is some of the first really proper virome studies where you go and you determine mm-hmm. in all the viruses in a species okay and that i think was one of the first kind of work on doing that and since that's been lots of these virome studies but that and so honeybees now actually one of the most studied of all organisms people we know the bee viruses quite well um in that case back in back in then it was still un, still actually a little bit unclear what was really going on we know there are these things called varroa mites. You may have heard of varroa mites. These nasty mm. little mites that, that infect, okay. infect bees. They're all over, the, all, over, all over the place. It's probably that the varroa mites were allowing viruses to come in in greater numbers. And that was that was kind of stressing the population. There's a whole bunch of viruses that... Um, so it was, it was the mite plus the a virus that was doing it. Quite which virus is still um, a bit debated, so I think so. Mm-hmm. So the solution to that, so now we know, now we know that, so I think what the the, the, the the outcome of that has been, you asked about what the direct outcome of that has been, I think what we know is we know that these mites are a real problem, particularly if there are viruses, viruses around. So we recently had an outbreak in Australia of mites. Mm-hmm. That's what they did, but they set up a very, they set up a, basically a quarantine, a very strong quarantine around that area to stop the mite spreading, <clears throat> which meant it can't, it couldn't transmit the viruses and the and the, and the colony couldn't collapse. Mm. So that led to, yeah, so that's essentially a kind of like physical distancing kind of solution, sure. a kind of quarantine solution that we use for COVID. But at least we, we knew that what, what the genomics told us and the viral work, is it defined what the problem was in, in more detail. And I think that was the first kind of case of ever, ever, ever that being done. As I said, we now yeah. do that. That viral work is now being done on lots and lots of species. And, and continuing that thought with a somewhat related theme, um, you, you've published a few papers that were quite fascinating on, on sort of principles of, of viral biocontrol. One one had to do with some nasty yeah. toad that was, I forget what the toad was doing, but it was yeah. it was bothering something. Yeah, the cane toads, and this uh, Rhinella marina endogenous retrovirus that were keeping that in order. And then uh, there were some rabbits that were I don't know if they were eating it, eating something that they didn't want them to eat, but here again, okay, so viruses have this beneficial effect. Uh, okay, we don't want them to to deal yeah. with the get rid of the honey beans, but yeah, we might not want all these toads around and and rabbits doing these nasty things. Talk a little about the principle of viral control. Yeah, and we see that. Going. Yeah, this is this is like the complete opposite, and it's it's right. quite a controversial topic. So, but um, it's it's. Uh, one that is very interesting, and it, particularly if you live in Australia, because Australia has like the worst invasive species extinction problem 
ever. I mean, we're like mm -hmm. one great laboratory for you know human error, mm -hmm. effectively. So I'll just give you two the two examples you mentioned. So one is the rabbits. Yeah. Um, so rabbits are not native to Australia, and they were brought in by the British. God bless them. I am one of those people. <laughs> um, in eighteen fifty nine into near Melbourne. And I think 20, there are 24 rabbits that were brought in. By about 1950, so 100 years later, yes, it's hard to know the number, but it may be in close to a billion rabbits, right? So they literally bred like rabbits. And it's, it's the fastest growth of any vertebrate and spread of any vertebrate species in history. So they're pristine environment. There are burrows from native marsupials they could use. They just went crazy. So there's, and they call it the Great Rabbit Plague. And there are literally these waves of rabbits. And you may, you may have seen a movie called Rabbit Proof Fence. Yep. If you haven't seen the movie, by the way, fantastic, terrible, horrifying movie, fantastic movie. Yep. So he built these, so one thing they try to do is build these fences across the country to stop yep. the rabbits moving. And there's one that goes from kind of Western Australia to Northern Australia, which is the movie is set on. And they're literally, I've got a photograph somewhere of, of the rabbits who got to the fence and like, they're like 25 foot deep of rabbits because they're backed up at the fence. They can't go any further, just a sea of rabbits. And these sort of, you know, vault, the birds come in, birds of prey come in, just picking the rabbit they want because there's so many to choose from. There's a massive ecological problem and it's destroying, you know, destroying the grasslands, and native species were, were being outcompeted that were burrowing, burrowing. We've lost a lot of mammals in Australia, native mammals. So they spent a lot of time trying to work out what the best um, solution to this problem was. In fact, at the end of the 19th century, there was a prize um, for right, because they were so worried even then, they announced an international prize, like, like $10,000 to find the right solution to the rabbit um, problem. And Louis Pasteur entered. Okay. Louis mm. Pasteur entered his cousin. He sent his this is true. He sent his cousin over, and the idea was to introduce foul plague, Pasteurella bacteria, to try and right. kill the rabbits. And they built a little research station in Sydney Harbour. They bought an island in Sydney Harbour, built a little research station. This is actually the first ever Institute Pasteur hmm. is in Sydney Harbour, Australia. A little history. Story. Amazing. To try and... <laughs> Um, he didn't win the prize. Anyway, so they went on and on. And then in 1950, they decided, they were so desperate, they decided to release a virus called Myxomavirus that causes yeah. myxomatosis. And this virus is native to, we think native to a, a South American species called a tapete. It's kind of a rabbit-like yeah. thing. Um, and it kills them. It kills them. But, uh, as in the tapete, it actually causes the, these lesions that are quite benign, actually. And but in the European rabbit, the one that is in Australia, these lesions are are lethal, and it's passed on by basically uh, mosquitoes by vectors. Okay, so they released this virus in in 1950, and it was it. I mean, the 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 mortality rate initially was 99.8 percent rabbits mm. died. Can you imagine? It's just an extraordinary, yeah. extraordinary. I don't think it's almost the most lethal virus ever really. I mean, incredible, incredible. And it, I mean, this killed a sea of viruses. He literally had fields of just, of just dead rabbits, right? killed rabbits, dead rabbits everywhere. Okay, this virus, so devastating. Um, and it had no kind of detrimental effects. In the researchers that worked on it actually injected themselves with it, okay, mm -hmm. amazingly, to see it was safe on humans. Um, but then what happened, this is why I kind of got involved, is... Um, the virus then evolved, okay? So it, it so initially it was massively virulent, but that virulence kind of went down. So it became less, it's still actually pretty nasty, but it became less nasty. And the rabbits evolved resistance, okay? As you'd expect. So there's a massive select on the rabbit to evade this virus. So it's the, it's, the, it's the textbook story, the textbook story of host virus co-evolution, how virulence evolves. Yep. Um, so it, worked, it it dampened the population pretty well, but didn't go extinct. They then released the second virus in 1996 called rabbit hemorrhage disease virus, a Khaleesi virus, mm -hmm. um, that also killed an enormous, these, these are not engineered viruses, they're natural viruses, that caused an enormous mortality event in rabbits. Um, again, no detrimental effects, reduced rabbit population, but the rabbits are very robust. They're still kind of there, but these biocontrols <laughs> have actually been pretty successful. Now, mm -hmm. The thing about Australia is that we don't have many native, we don't have really almost no native placental mammals. Okay, we have marsupials, but not placental mammals. Yeah. And so these the, the release of these viruses is a little bit more 
a little bit safer sure. than you might expect in other locations. It's not going to jump into lots of it hasn't. We don't think it's jumped at any species so far. The problem, of course, of biocontrol is it it does work. It's a it's a it's a very you know a, a very um, dramatic solution. But you the worry is would it jump into other species right. and cause other problems? This, this is a great concern. The one they're concerned about now is actually carp. So Australian rivers are full of European carp that were, that okay. were um, imported in for fishing. So there's a thing called the Murray-Darling River Basin. So Southeast Australia has got one massive river system. And now I think like 90% of the, of the biomass of fish is one species, European carp. <laughs> and so there's been lots of solution about how do we, it's like the rabbits, right? But, but sure. fish. How do we, how do we remove this uh, this carp? Um, and one of the one of the ideas was to release a virus, uh, a herpes virus that's found in, in ornamental fish, koi. Yeah. So koi herpes, koi herpes virus, and to try and release this, they called it carpageddon. Okay, to try and remove, <laughs> try and you know, destroy this amazing carp. Dog. Now that hasn't happened. The proposals were were made pre-COVID. There's lots of safety testing done being done i don't think it will actually happen i think i think the worry would be i think post covid i think we're in a slightly different thinking about viral right. diseases i think there'll be a lot of dead fish around and that will that will itself impact the river system yeah. so i don't think that's going to happen so biocontrols are are you know they are they are a solution but they're what not one to be, to be used lightly and um but yeah, it's a it's a fast it's a fast they're fascinating they're fascinating. I'll just say one more one more story very briefly. Please, the first time. biocontrol ever 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 used actually a fascinating story is in a place called Marion Island. Have you heard of Marion Island? So no. Marion Island is in the South Atlantic. It's just north of Antarctica. It's between South Africa and Antarctica. Okay, it's a vast stretch of ocean there. These are French owned. These French owned islands. So right, really, really remote, windswept, bleak kind of places. But there's a weather station. There's a weather station on Marion Island. And they had a, um, a rodent, a rat problem because of the, of the weather station, right? So mm -hmm. rats are there. People, people are rats. There's rats everywhere. So they introduced some cats. You know what's going to come on. <laughs> they introduced some cats to kill the rats, right? And by about 10 years later, there's like hundreds of cats, literally oh. that, or thousands of cats probably. And the cats are then eating these rare seabirds that come onto the island. It's humans playing with ecology, Ira, right? So what it is, yeah. you know. So there's, there's, there's these rats and there's, there's the cats <laughs> and the kind of birds. So they introduced a virus called feline parvovirus sure. to kill the cats. Um, and it worked. And they, they massively reduced the number and they trapped the rest and they, they removed the cats from the island. That was the first ever use of biocontrol. Now, that was actually, you would never ever ever want to use that virus because it jumps between low we now know it's the most jumpy virus you can think right. of it goes between loads of different host species if you released it in north america you would lose you know lots of native carnivals so it's a disaster mm -hmm. luckily this is the most remote army you can think of in the yes. atlantic right so it's actually it was okay to do it but um you know it's it just shows you that the, these ecological effects that humans have absolutely. and how viruses kind of play a role in that absolutely that's a that's, that's a fascinating story. I, I was I was unaware that even existed, but uh, no, no, that's that's a good one. Um, hey, one of the um, looking back, sort of at, at the some of the the early days in in your in your publication history, uh, back in actually February of two thousand one, um, you published uh, a paper on um, hepatitis G. Uh, virus and yeah, uh, this is interesting because both I had a, a Jack Stapleton uh, a few years ago on talking about it, and then from your old neck of the woods of Penn State, Maryland, uh, uh, Rusink. Um, and yeah. you know, here we're dealing with you know, you brought up the virome before, but uh, we have these important stories. I mean, this is one of the ones that we've heard a lot about. Um, you know, here's something that has a a beneficial effect in the sense that, you know, people affected by this have a lower risk of what was HIV or, or herpes infection and so forth. Uh, we've also done shows on bacteriophage viruses and so forth. Uh, talk a little bit about some of what you find when you're sort of, once again, swimming through the virus sphere, uh, whether it's things like hepatitis G or other interesting uh, beneficial viruses, because once again, there's a huge part of the virus sphere that yeah. is not dangerous to us. 
Yeah, I think I th- I, beneficials are hard. It's a harder thing to actually quantify. I sure. certainly think that most of the virus fear is 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 neutral. It's not doing anything, right? Certainly in animals too. Humans don't have. Humans are actually very interesting. We don't have that many viruses that that are non disease causing. So why humans are different is an unusual question. So hepatitis C, that's now called GBVC, right. by the way, so it's got a yeah. new virus. That is that is a commensal, a benign virus. And humans have three or four of those. If you sample people, 10% of the people have GB, GBVC. Um, or it's actually now called human peg, so they've changed it again. It's now called human peggy virus, right? It's got yeah. an even newer name. Cool. So you find that virus all over the place. Um, the evidence that it's beneficial, I think, is pretty pretty scant. I think it's certainly not doing anything dangerous. But there are very few of the very few of um, humans have very few of these non-disease causing viruses. Most of the viruses we have cause it. Now, whether it's because of our of the way we vaccinate, whether it's because of our hygiene, we're not exposed so much, but humans are kind of unusual. Mm. Um, in the natural world, we animals that I work on, you see lots of viruses. We see no evidence of them actually having any detrimental effect at all. Mm-hmm. How many of those are beneficial? That's a very hard question to answer because you need to look at very complicated interactions between them. And we don't really do People don't do that kind of research. Um, the benefits might be, they might be, for example, if you have immunity to one virus, that may help prevent something else coming in that's actually quite similar. Okay. So we know that, you know, dengue and yellow fever, if you have antibody to dengue, that might that might help prevent yellow fever kind of thing. So mm. that 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 kind of immune that might that might be a reason. Um there might yeah might be some proteins that are expressed that help prevent other viruses it's it's i think the beneficial i think it's a very good question i think what i think what the way that the field is going i think we've moved away from the idea that all viruses are necessarily bad and mm-hmm. causing disease i think that's we moved away from that the next in the future i think one of the great research themes will likely be how many of them are beneficial Okay, I think that will be a, that's a, I think that's kind of where we're going to go. I don't think we're quite there yet, but that might come up. Yeah, and I, I think with you know everything we hear about, you know, what's going on with the microbiome and sort of microbiome living therapeutics and so forth. I think it's it's yeah. going to be a, a piece of that. Yeah, and, and so far, yeah, far therapy, bacteriophage therapy. Yeah. We use bacteriophage to kill bacteria. Yeah, that's a really exciting area. I completely yeah. agree. That's a very interesting thing, and we don't know. And so, and I say humans. I, I should say qualify point. When I mentioned about human viruses, I'm not talking about bacteriophage. I'm talking about viruses that infect humans. Of course, bacteriophage right. infect sure. bacteria within right, humans. Right, right. So I don't, I don't class as a human as human gotcha. viruses. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, Eddie, can you say a few words about? Um, I, I know you had. I've re- I've read some articles. Uh, you've been you know quoted in when um, uh, referring to sort of the predict spillover tool. Yeah. Uh, John John yeah. Mazette, uh, was here. Yeah about a year ago yeah. talking about that i know you had some opinion in yeah. terms uh yeah it's great to sample everything but there's a lot out there and and maybe more of a targeted surveillance versus just cataloging yeah. everything is yeah talk a little bit about your perspective on this please. <clears throat> yeah and so i i our difference of opinion and it's not a, a big thing i don't think i mean certainly mainly on the same page is the fact that <clears throat> I, I have no problem. I, my work of virus evolution diversity, so I do a lot of animal sampling. I mean, I, you know, absolutely. Um, I think that's very important to understand how viruses jump species boundaries and how they evolve. Where, where, what I don't think that, and that tells me a lot, tells me where viruses come from. They're, the rules of how they evolve, the rules that shape the diversity, how often they jump species boundaries, the barriers to that process. It tells me that. It doesn't tell me, I don't think, what's going to jump next. Okay, so my my problem my problem with with viral diversity studies is I think they're fine as they are. Is are they do they give you predictability? They give you something tangible. You can say, aha, that's the next pandemic. And I I don't think they do. And the problem and I don't think they do for for a number of reasons. On the main well, the main one big reason there are an awful lot of there are a huge number of viruses. And if you look at a bat species, for example, everyone's obsessed by bats. But if you look at bats, um, it depends. There are an awful lot of bats. It depends which bats, which bat population you look at, mm-hmm. which part of their home range you look at, which season you look at, because viruses have a seasonality. So if you look in the spring, you look in the winter, you might see a different set of viruses. What tissue you look at. Okay, so 
we often use um, fecal sampling for bats because it's it's safe, right? You just you basically to collect bat poo with a tarp right under a tree. It's kind of easy to. Do. But if you do that, you mainly get dietary viruses. You get the insects and the plants that they've eaten. If you look at bat tissue, if you look at a liver of a bat, something like that for a disease bat, you get a different set of viruses. And you look do fecal sampling. So it depends on place, time, what tissue, and they evolve rapidly. So if, if I did my sampling of bats today, mm -hmm. I looked in five years' time, there'd be, a, there'd be the viruses evolved on. So there's an enormous number of viruses. So, so, you know, to me to say, which of that extraordinary last virus sphere are you ever going to predict that's going to mm -hmm. going to cause disease? Also, they, they're going to evolve in the host. Okay, so SARS-CoV-2, we have <laughs> we have bat viruses that are quite close. But there's still an evolutionary gap and there are bits mm -hmm. of sequence in the human we haven't quite found the ancestry of. Right. So there's an so you know, if you found if you found a SARS-CoV-2 like virus in humans back in 2019, would what what would you have done? Would you have <gasps> said, Oh no, I wanna I'm gonna kill all the bats, am I gonna vax them? Am I gonna evacuate the people from the local area? Or would you have done nothing? I bet they would have done nothing because they wouldn't have realized that <clears throat> that virus had characteristics that were going to do anything. So I don't think that <clears throat> mass sampling of animals in nature is necessarily predictive. What I would do, as you mentioned, is more target surveillance. I mm -hmm. think the human animal interface is the place. I think it's people who work, people who work, at, you know, in the wildlife train, in bush, in bush meat, in abattoirs, in animal markets veterinarians animal carers who interact with animals they are on the front line they're the canaries in the coal mine they're the mm -hmm. people being exposed right so those people and the animals that they're interacting with who work in, who are in and i've done a lot of animal market sampling right wildlife trade sampling they are the, they're the risk they're the fault line they're the stress point they're the risky point right so i focus on them and then have really good surveillance now that necessarily means we miss the first case right I think yeah. we, we, you're going you're gonna to get the first person. I don't think we can ever prevent that, though. So I think, I think if we have really good target surveillance, I think we've got a chance of, of uh, preventing the next pandemic. So if you go back to COVID, right, um, you know, I, think, I, don't think we, I don't think we'd ever prevented that spillover happening in, in, in Wuhan. Mm -hmm. But I think we could have prevented the pandemic. I think if we'd have acted quicker, we could have stopped the going pandemic. Okay, so I think, I think there are... Once you've got early information, I think there is time to act. I think I think we dropped the ball there, and we dropped the ball so many times in the past. Um, Eddie, in 2010, um, I think that's when it was formally established that uh, it was Yersinia pestis that was the actual cause of the, the medieval Black Death. Um, you published the paper in 2020 in Current Biology on the importance yeah. of studying these ancient pathogen genomes yeah. and some of the things that we can learn. Um, talk about sort of, you know, where this potentially goes. I mean, is it, it studying... <clears throat> mummies or I mean, what 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 potentially is the, the scale by which uh we can search in the sense of this virus sphere again uh going back in sort of the human experience yeah this is a this is a kind of side project look and before i go on a lot, a lot of people get um <clears throat> overly worried about this sort of work this you know is it says things are very completely fragmented right they're degraded to anything these ancient ancient samples they're they're at no they're at no great risk right so if, you know a virus you get from a from a, a um a bone from a from 30 black death in 1347 is not going to give you pestis it's completely degraded right so <clears throat> put that out there um I think what this tells us is so for that particular this is bacteria immune pest, not a virus. What we're interested sure. in was, was was trying to work out the virulence. Why is it that these ancient, these older plagues, so the you know the plague, the Black Death, a pandemic of Justinian, the Roman Emperor in five forty, killed you know half Europe's population. Why were they so nasty compared to the modern plague outbreaks? They're a lot more benign. What is it? Is it was it was it the bacteria had the bacteria changed were the bacteria these was a black death just an intrinsically nastier thing or was it this is actually i think the right answer that people just lived in squalor right effectively and then you know, they, they they were continually exposed they were unhealthy lived in overcrowded cities had had awful hygiene awful diets and so the bacteria was enough to take them over the edge 
into 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 the disease rather than being intrinsically virulent thing in it so i think it's more likely as a combination of factors that and the bacteria added something than than um than it being a highly virulent strain in itself so <clears throat> i think what this what this tells us in that case it can tell us about about virulence the same's been done for um for like smallpox okay so yeah. um with smallpox we think of as being we know for smallpox remember Edward Jenner of course and cowpox vaccination also right. our, our consciousness of smallpox starts in 1796 with Jenner mm -hmm. but now they've gone back and found smallpox you know, back in the Viking times okay mm. it's incredible right so you know way older and again the question is can we see signatures in the genome that yeah. tell us how virulence might have evolved? Is what are, you know? What are these? Was it less virulent, more virulent? Has virulence changed through time? So I think that's that's the most interesting thing. Is actually that that the because you get so few of these ancient samples, you can't really construct. I don't think you can really construct complicated popular histories. But I think you can sort of say, can you see gene changes that may be responsible for evolution of virulence? So, so I think I think to me that's the most that's that's the really thing that um, this tell us. The gap we've got, I tell you, the gap we've got with ancient pathogens is the, all the things we mentioned so far. All things have been done: smallpox, plague's been done, hepatitis B virus was pushed right back, um, uh, leprosy, mm -hmm. mycobacterium has been pushed back. They're all DNA-based organisms. What we haven't got sure. are ancient RNA pathogens. Got it. The oldest thing that I really think people believe in is called a 1918 flu because RNA degrades really sure. quickly. So the holy grail out there, listeners, viewers, is to get an, a, a way of looking at ancient RNA. That would be really interesting. And again, it's the start of the 20th, around the early 20th century is kind of where that field. I'd love to get ancient RNA viruses out there to see what they look like, but they degrade. They degrade so quickly, it's hard right. to do. But that's that's the gap. And, that, and you know, technology will get there, I reckon, but we'll see. Yeah. It did in Jurassic Park, but yeah, they never, they never. Yeah, it's <laughs> they never explained that part about the the RNA. But the, the, yeah, <laughs> um, Eddie, I, I have to ask because you know, uh, again, I I went yeah. through, I spent time sort of swimming through your your publication, and and this one popped out at me, and I would love to hear, you know, as, as we get close, I know you have a hard stop in in, in about thirteen yeah. minutes, but um, I would love to hear the story about the phone call that you got, probably maybe late 2018, early 2019, somebody calls you up and says, Eddie, I have a, a thoroughbred stallion that has a lesion on his penis. Uh, I have semen. I want you to take a look at it. What was that all about uh, that led to the, the publication of this <sighs> August 2019 paper in Virus? Oh, wow. Well, that's the first time anyone's ever asked about that one. Yeah. So um, one of my good colleagues in Australia is a, a GP, a, local, a doctor I work a lot with, called bernie hudson he's a great disease physician in, in northern sydney and he's got a sideline uh, of of breeding horses right racehorses um not very good racehorses i have to say but racehorses it doesn't, it doesn't make much money but um and he works a lot with the kind of stud industry in in australia and this this is i didn't know anything about this but this is a, this is a, a hugely big money industry right so these mares are, are they're serviced by uh, by a stallion on a, on a regular basis yeah. and you pay a lot of money for a service okay it's <laughs> like i don't know the, the it's it can be it can be i think the most one i saw was something like two hundred fifty thousand dollars per wow. service right for the the, the top bread i mean it's extremely you know, crazy amounts of money right so um we so there's a huge amount of money in this so if 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 the stallions can't perform they can't do their servicing work it's a big thing right yeah. so there was a particular a mid-ranking horse um I the name of it slipping from what, what i probably should name it anyway that was having problems in the uh in the servicing area and we we wanted to take a look at it what it was and he had this lesion on its penis right its, its main servicing tool and so they wanted to know what was if what what the cause of that was so we sequenced it and there was a, um, a papillomavirus, which is yeah. so people use papillomavirus they cause wart, genital warts, and yep. um, actually very serious. So cervical cancer is caused by a papillomavirus, right? And there it was. This, this particular, we think that was the cause of this particular lesion, um, preventing the, the 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 stallion from doing its its job, right? But it was a big a big money. I wanted, unfortunately, one of the great things I wanted to name the virus is certain after a certain individual who's a well-known <laughs> recent recent well-known recent british prime minister but i was not allowed to under the rules of taxonomy so go. unfortunately there you go. 
A day in the life of the evolutionary biologist. No, no. <laughs> oh, Daniel, it's, it's excitement every day, Art. Right? Yeah. Every day. Um, Eddie, what what else is uh, what else is hot? Uh, what's what's coming up for twenty twenty three? Anything um, hot that I missed? Conferences you're going to be presenting at? Uh, talks you're going to be giving? Well, so the, take the floor. Yeah, the main thing that we're going to do, I think, is more of this. Um, you know, we, we touched some of the COVID issue. And so I think, you know, briefly, I think what I mean, what I'm particularly interested in now, I've mentioned a few times, is this, is the wildlife trade and the animal farming and what that leads to. And so with colleagues in China, we are um, still looking at outbreaks in these animals that are that are farmed and then go into these animal markets. And animal markets are still, are still closed. Mm-hmm. But the breeding places are still there. So we have at the moment, we have a variety of outbreaks in things like raccoon dogs and mink mm-hmm. in China that we're working on to work out what the cause. I mean, this, and these animals are kept under not very good conditions. And there's, lo- there's lots of disease outbreak. And to me, that's the front line of emergence. So we're trying to work out what are in those things. We've got a lot of sampling going on. I think these are pretty big studies. I don't quite know what's in them yet, so I can't give you any kind of tips. But we're trying to kind of work. I think that to me is a is a is a, is a crucial thing to try and work out. Um, it's where humans and animals come together, and that's yeah. where you're going to get risk. So I'm gonna, I'm going to do more of that. I'm doing more of that in the Australian context too. Looking, at, I've talked about ecosystems in 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 New Zealand, but also do my local kind of ecosystem because in Australia, you know, we build humans are going more and more in building into the kind of the wild area interacting species that carry diseases so i'm interested in that nexus between humans and what i call backyard wildlife that we interact all the time to see what's jumping so it's the human animal interface that i'm 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 working on really and hopefully there'll be some big stories probably not too big no no big outbreaks i'm hoping it's no big outbreaks but um, no more penis hopefully we'll see we'll see (laughs) Yeah, we'll, we'll see what's being, you know, see what we're being exposed to on a regular yeah. basis. Excellent. Really excellent. Well, I, I wish you uh, a successful 2023 as we get close to the new year here. Um, for everybody that is going to be listening to this particular episode of the show uh, across the various podcast networks or watching on the YouTube channel. Uh, again, you've been listening to Dr. Eddie Holmes, professor, Sydney Institute for Infectious Diseases, School of Life Environmental Sciences and Sydney Medical School down at the University of Sydney in Australia. Uh, Eddie, I wanna thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us for a little while about everything you're doing there. Obviously, thank you for doing it. And uh, as we say on our show here, you know, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow through the research you do. Really fascinating stories. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was a uh, great pleasure. Good seeing you.